All right, let's go to the Word together. We're all going to open up to a really, really short passage today in the Old Testament, in Leviticus. So can I get you guys to open up to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26. If you don't have a Bible, it should be on the screen behind me. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26. I'll be reading from the ESV version. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you shall be mine. Amen. Hello. Don't worry, we'll have more Bible than just that one verse today. Um, well, welcome, and again, a warm welcome to all the old people, the old faces, I mean the old faces, and especially the new faces uh, that we haven't seen before. I was actually talking to Steve before, um, and he was saying what a beautiful thing it is that uh, we, as children of God, can go to different places and still find family, right? So he's from overseas, but he can come here and find brothers and sisters. I, I think that is really beautiful um, that we are one in Christ. Um, you know, you might know, but we're starting a new series today. Uh, so I want to introduce today's series, and then we're going to kind of jump into um, the first part of the series today. Uh, but you know, when you think about mankind, uh, we are hungry to figure out who we are, right? our, our identity, and who we are, and therefore how we are meant to live. And in order to find and answer this identity question, uh, we look at a bunch of different places. We look inside of ourselves, and maybe we can figure it out on a journey of self-discovery inside me. And sometimes people look not inside of themselves, they look outside of themselves to you know, what people say and what their friends say, what their parents say, the kind of life that they live, in order to figure out who they are and therefore how they are meant to live. But when we get to the Bible, the Bible tells us to find out who you are, you need to go to God. Right? It's when we know who God is that we might then begin to know who we are. If you go to the book of Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 1, we see the story of how God created uh, the universe. And there's this repetition of God saying, let there be. Right? Let there be, let there be, let there be. But on the sixth day, when it comes to creating mankind, there's a break in that repetition. Right? And we see that God says, let us make. Right? Not let there be, but he changes it. He says, let us make man in our image after our own likeness. Right? So we are made in the image of God, right? to reflect God, modeled after him in certain ways. And so for us to know who we are, then we need to first know who God is. And it is when we know who God is that we might have a good picture of who we are. Now, we call this the communicable attributes of God, right? Because they're communicated, they're shared from God to us. So in certain ways, we are meant to be like God, right? And you, as a person made in the image of God, are made to be like God and reflect God in your life, right? Which is why this series is called Image Bearers. We are people who are made to bear the image of God and then to reflect it in our lives, but before I jump into that, I also want to put in a side note. 
because there are other ways in which we're not meant to be like God, right? And we need to know that those things exist, right? When the serpent comes to Eve in uh, the book of Genesis, chapter 3, the lie of Satan is this. He says, God knows that when you eat of it, eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened. And what does he say? He says, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Right, so we're already meant to be like God, and yet the temptation is that you will be like God. I, I thought we already were like God, right? What, what, what does this mean? And what, what the serpent is trying to say is, you can be like God in the areas you're not meant to be. Right, so there are areas where we are meant to be like God. We call them the communicable attributes. But there are areas where we're not meant to be like God, and we call them incommunicable attributes. We're not meant to be like God in these areas. And when we try to be like God in these areas, that's when it gets messy. Right? So God is all-knowing. We're not meant to be. He's all-powerful. Right? He's in control. He's the center of all things. He's the object of all of our worship and our love. And those things are for God. But when we try to be all-knowing and in control, when we make ourselves the center of our lives and the object of everyone's worship and love, well, that's when we get into trouble. Right? So I just want to make clear, those areas, the incommunicable attributes, we are not meant to be like. But the communicable attributes, those we're meant to share with God. And so in this series, we're going to look at 10 communicable attributes or 10 ways that we reflect God in our lives. And the hope is that through these 10 weeks, that you will, number one, grow to know God more. But as we look at God and the attributes of God, grow in your knowledge of God, and not just your knowledge, but then in your relationship with Him. But then second, you would grow in the knowledge of who you are meant to be as a Christian and therefore be able to live that out in your life. Now, when you come to the communicable attributes or any attributes of God, you go to any book or systematic uh, theology book, they'll list it in different ways, right? It's hard to really kind of define God and be like, God's like this, 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 right? There's a lot of overlap. Um, you know, in Wayne Grudem's systematic book, uh, he lists 20, but we're going to go through 10. And the 10 that we're going through is following a book by Jen Wilkins called In His Image. Right, it's a great book. If you want to read that, if you want to read the better version of what we're going to say, you can read that book. It's a short book. But we're going to just follow those 10 attributes in this series. So let's begin. Uh, you may have heard of A.W. Tozer. Uh, he asked this, asked this question. Oh, he says this, sorry. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Right? What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most important fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceived God to be like. And that's from the book, The Knowledge of the Holy. And what he's saying is, the biggest question, the most important thing that you need to figure out is, who is God to you? So let me ask you, when you think about God, what's the first attribute or characteristic that might come to mind? When you think about God, what's, what's that most defining feature of who he is? I'll give you 10 seconds to think about it. Well, maybe for some of us, we thought love. Of course, love. God is love. Right? So, so defining in 1 John 4. 
God so loved us that he sent his son, John 3.16. And love is meant to be that which you know, proves that we are his disciples to the world. So love, God is love. Or maybe you thought love. Or maybe you thought grace and mercy. Right? We sing about the good news of Jesus and how God was gracious to us and he forgave us in Jesus. Grace. Or maybe for some of us you thought anger and wrath. Because that's what was kind of emphasized as you were growing up. You know, don't do that or God, God's watching and you, you, you got that fear. And fear is good, but maybe it's an imbalanced fear. But let me give you the answer, the right answer. The first attribute that should probably come to our minds when we think about God is holy. God is holy. Now we're going to jump into this. I've got two points today. First, behold a holy God. The reason why I say this is the one attribute that should come to mind, the, the most prominent uh, characteristic of God, if you could say that, is because when you look at the scriptures, this is the way that God is described most. Right? Most, out, out of all things, I mean, God is loving, of course. He is just. He does hate sin. He is merciful and gracious. He is patient. He is all these things put together. And yet, when you read the scriptures, what is put forward above all, the chief attribute, it is holiness, right? God is holy, right? If you look at the, this, this verse from Exodus, one of many that I could have chosen, it says, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Now, holiness is, is the first attribute that should come to mind, but it's actually one of the hardest ones to, to explain, Right, to define, right? I, I went through like a dozen different definitions. They're all different, right? And people would kind of admit and scholars admit, it's hard to kind of pinpoint what holiness is. And a part of it is because holiness bleeds into the rest of the attributes of God, right? R.C. Sproul, he says that God's holiness means that his justice is a holy justice. His mercy is a holy mercy. His knowledge is a holy knowledge. His spirit is a holy spirit, right? Holiness kind of affects every other attribute of God. But if I were to kind of try to define it, this, this is my version. I, I don't think anyone else said it this way, so it could be wrong. I'll say holiness is God's incomparable perfection. Right? God's incomparable perfection. But I'm going to break that up into three parts. And what that means is, first, that God is separate. Can you read that in the white? God is separate. Right, the primary meaning of holy is to be set apart or to be separate. For something to be holy, it's, it's different from every other thing. And so God in his holiness is set apart from everything else in creation. 1 Samuel 2, it says, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. Right? There is no rock like our God. When you hear about God's holiness in the scriptures, a lot of times it's, it's trying to convey the idea that God is unlike other things. Or when something is described as holy, it is set apart. The, the Sabbath day is holy because it's set apart from every other day of the week that it will be different. When Israel or Christians are called to be holy, we are to be different from the rest of creation, the rest of people. You know, the way that we use the word holidays. Did you know the word holidays is holy and days put together? Holy days? Oh, interesting, right? And that's the reason why is because the holidays are meant to be different from every other day of the year. Interesting. Holy, set apart. Second, 
pure. When we say God is holy, the implication is that God is, is, is perfect, he's, he's flawless. He's without uh, a taint or trace of sin or anything negative. There is no weakness in him. He is complete. You know, for us on a good day, we saw in the book of James, on a good day we may resist sin. We may bite our tongue and not say that awful thing that we, we, we want to say or do the evil that, that you know, we were tempted to do. And we might have a good day like that and not commit sin. But still the temptation and the urges to do evil is within us. But for God, God not only does no sin, there is no sin or no temptation at all within him to sin. That is how pure and perfect he is. There is no evil in him that comes out of him or around him. And third, he is then transcendent. The result of his separation and his purity is that God is um, beyond us, in a sense. In his moral perfection, there is, he's unlike anyone or anything. God alone is God, and nothing else compares to him. You alone are holy. Right? God alone. And in a sense, God should be and is so distant from people like us. Because we are when we look at that, so different from the way God is described. You know, perhaps most clearly we see the holiness of God in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. I love this chapter. In chapter 6, Isaiah has a vision of God. And in verse 1, it describes that he has this vision in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, King Uzziah was an imperfect king like most kings in the Old Testament. Uh, but for most of his life, he was pretty good. Through his reign, Israel enjoyed peace and prosperity. They had a good life under this king. And King Uzziah, he reigned for 52 years. Which when you think about it, is a very long time. So for everyone who was living, either King Uzziah was the only king they, they knew, or he was the king for most of their life. Right? Because his, he reigned for that long. But after 52 years of peace and prosperity, the king has died. And so you can imagine what a huge deal it would have been for the people of Israel, how much instability there would have been. The, the king has died. It would have been you know, all over the headlines. That's all that people are talking about. But in contrast to this, we read, In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord, I saw God sitting up on, on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. I love that contrast. On one hand, the king is dead. But on the other hand, the king, right, God the king, he lives. And he's still there. He's seated on the throne. And he's high and he's lifted up. And Isaiah is trying to paint this picture, a contrast between the, the frailty and the finiteness of humanity versus the infinite, eternal nature, the holiness of God. But he's there, he's always there, and he will always be there upon the throne. And his robe is described as filling the temple. Can you imagine, like, God, if God was here, his robe is like filling this hall. It's like a sea of his robe. And when you go to a wedding and the bride walks in and they've got a, a, the train of, of their wedding gown, and when it's really long, it accentuates their the beauty. And you're like, oh, that's wonderful. It's kind of what it's like. It's, it's displaying the power of God, the sea of his robe 
that fills the temple. And Isaiah looks up in verse 2, and it says, Above him he stood the seraphim, right, these angelic beings. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Right, the word seraphim literally means burning ones. And so these burning ones, these angelic beings, right, above him. And I don't know, I try to imagine, I Googled the pictures of it. It's hard to imagine just how amazing these beings must have been. Some of these pictures are like scary. And they've got six wings. I'm imagining these six massive wings. I know you played some games where there's these creatures like this. And Isaiah is just before there. And I could show you a picture of it, but it wouldn't do justice to just how scary it must have been to behold these angelic beings. Just like I show you a picture of a great white shark and you'd be like, oh, that's pretty cool. That's nothing like if you were actually in the water face to face with one. And so here he is, these incredible, terrifying beings, and they've got six wings. And in verse 4, it says that they're crying out, and their cry is so powerful that the foundations of the thresholds are shaking. The room is shaking because their voices are so loud. Must be a lot of bass and reverb or something. It's like, and it's just shaking your body. But the most amazing thing about all of this That though they are amazing and fearful beings with six wings and their voices are shaking the room, they are giving all of their glory to someone else. Above him stood the seraphim, and what are they doing with their wings? With two they covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. You see, even though they got six wings, four of the six are being used to hide themselves. They do not dare to see God or be seen by God because God is so holy and majestic. And as they cry out with this foundation shaking voices, what are they saying? They're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. They're giving God praise. These amazing beings humble themselves in the presence of God and give all the glory to him. And what are they singing? Right, they're not singing love, They're not singing grace or mercy. They give God praise because he is holy. And they don't just say holy. And they don't just say holy, holy. They say holy, holy, holy. Now in Hebrew, they have no exclamation marks. And so to emphasize things, they would repeat the word. So this is holy, exclamation marks. This is the only time in all of the scriptures that God is described in the third degree. Where a a description is is repeated three times. God is holy, holy, holy. He is very, very holy. This is our God. He is holy. Now the idea of a holy God doesn't seem that attractive. Especially, I feel like in the way that our our world is going on, it feels a little old-fashioned maybe. We'd prefer a God who is loving. And he's very down-to-earth and he lets me do what I want and he doesn't doesn't care too much if I break some of the the rules. We want like a friendly grandfather God who's just there to to lean on and he's, he's just always comfortable to be around. 
The idea of a holy God doesn't seem that attractive. And yet it is so crucial that we accept God the way that he describes himself. The way that he has revealed himself through his word. You know, the Bible says man was made in the image of God. But too often we make God in the image of man. To be the kind of God that we would prefer. Right, a God that you know, breaks the rules and you know, he's not completely holy or it doesn't matter, he doesn't, doesn't care too much about sin. God is meant to shape us, but too often we shape the way that God is in our minds. A.W. Tozer, he, he says this. He says that too often it is our failure to know who God is that leads to the ruin of the church, and a hundred different other sins in our lives. I'm going to pull out a quote, and it's a bit long. This is what he says. He says, the church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for it one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking worshipping men. This she has done not deliberately, but little by little, and without a knowledge, and a very unawareness only makes her situation all the more tragic. The low view of God, entertained almost universally among Christians, right, that's, that's pretty uh, condemning, but he, he's saying this all over the place. The low view of God, entertained almost universally among Christians, is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. A whole new philosophy of Christian life has resulted from this one basic error in our religious thinking. This one failure to exalt God, to make him a holy God, has led to a hundred different evils in our lives. And when you think about it, it kind of makes sense. Because when we don't have a holy God, we lose the awe and wonder that is Jewish name. When we step into service, when we, when we sing, when we pray, if God is not holy, it completely affects the posture by which we approach him. And lovingly, in truth, as your pastor, I wonder if that's a part of the reason why we are habitually late to church. Because we don't treat God as a holy God and we don't treat this place and time as a holy place and time. Without a holy God, we lose the amazement that this kind of God would know this kind of person. Because he is pure and separate and transcendent. And yet, this God knows you, loves you, and cares for you, and sent his son to die for you. If God's not a holy God and he's just like the person next to you, then who cares that he would know you and listen to you and speak to you? Without a holy God, we lose godly fear. The kind of fear that makes us flee from sin. The kind of fear that makes us lose the weight of the sins that we have committed. Without a holy God, we lose our standard of perfection, the kind of perfection that we are meant to be like. We need to accept that our God is holy, even though it might not feel like it is preferred. Our God is holy. He is separate in his own category. He is pure, morally perfect, with no flaw or fault, and he is transcendent. Unlike anything or anyone, nothing and no one compares to him. And the first thing is that we just need to, we need to know it. We need to believe that and accept that this is true. 
to a certain degree, it's hard for us to grasp this attribute of God, maybe more than any other attribute, because we are not innately born holy. Without a miracle of God, we are not holy. And so it's hard for us to imagine what holiness is like, what purity without sin is like. And we might grasp a glimpse of it, like Isaiah did, but on this side of heaven, we won't completely know because we still see through a lens of sin. And so we really need to fight to accept this truth about God. It means we need to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal the truth of who God is, especially through scriptures. God will reveal who he is, that he really is a holy God. That's the first thing. We need to behold a holy God. But when we behold a holy God, it doesn't just remain there as an academic exercise. It'll affect us. And this is the second and last point. It should make us a holy people. Now I'm going to break this second point into three parts. I want to talk about our problem with holiness, our positional holiness, and then our practical holiness. Okay, so that's where we're going. First, our problem with holiness. When we see the holiness of God, it immediately creates a problem for us. And it should, and that's good. When Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, he sees God, right? The seraphim are flying around with, they're covering their faces and their feet and they're, they're crying out, holy, 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 and everything's shaking and the, the room is filled with the robe of God and all of this. Isaiah speaks for the first time in verse 5. These are his first words. This is what he says. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Isaiah sees this infinitely holy God, his first words are, woe is me. Right? You probably heard me say this. I think David Platt says, he doesn't say wow, he says woe. He doesn't say, wow, look at God. Oh, that's so cool. Oh, there's angels and stuff. Let me take a photo. He doesn't say, wow, God's holy. I'm kind of like that too. I'm like him. He doesn't say that. His first response is to look to God and then to look to himself and realize that he is unlike God. When he stands before the blazing, piercing holiness of God like a light, it sheds upon himself all of his iniquities. He sees so clearly his failure. And so he says, woe, woe is me. And that means really, I'm dead. I'm a goner. You see, Isaiah knows that God is holy, but he's not. And when he sees God and sees who God is, he realizes who he is not. That he is not like God. That he is not holy. Romans 3.23, it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this is, this is a good place to be in, to see the holiness of God and to realize that we are not. But again, this is a problem that we're not holy because God calls us to holiness. Right? This is a standard. God's standard for us is, is perfection. It's holiness as he is holy. Right? Contrary to what other people may say or think, God's standard is not 50%. This isn't um, high school test where, you know, just, just get 50%. Yes, you know, I passed. And you're happy days. You know, credit's good and distinction's, distinction's awesome. But, you know, 50%, that's all I'm aiming for. Right? Some of us, we're like that. Me? Okay, no, just me. 
God's not 50%. That's not what he's aiming for. God's standard is not as long as you can you know, point out someone else in your life that's worse than you, you're good. God's standard is not as long as the good things in your life is a little bit better, more than the bad things in your life. That's not how God works. The standard of God is perfection. It is holiness. We see this throughout the Bible. In Leviticus chapter 20. You shall be holy to me for I, the Lord, am holy. Right? You see that relationship between who God is and therefore who we're meant to be. You shall be holy to me for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Again, you got this idea of separation. Jesus in the New Testament, he then says, you therefore must be, oh, sorry. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And all of this matters because for us to know God and to have a relationship with him, this is what we need to be. Right? As Psalm 24 says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. God's standard is holiness, but we're not holy. And because we're not holy, we cannot be with God. And here's the problem. Here's the problem that holiness brings to us. This is a good place to be. This is a place that every single one of us need to get to at a certain point in our lives. Because it's only when we get to the place where Isaiah is, where he sees that he's unable to be in the presence of God. He's unable to be who God calls him to be. It's then that we might stop trying to save ourselves. It's only here that we will stop trying to you know, be good enough for God and realize we cannot be good enough for God. And when we stop trying to save ourselves, we might be ready to receive the real Savior, who is Jesus Christ. So let me go on to the second part, which is our positional holiness. The story of Isaiah continues and a miracle happens in verse 6 to 7. It says, then one of the seraphim, right, those angelic beings, it flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, God didn't have to do any of what he's just explained there. God could have just left Isaiah to, to die. You know, I feel like, I don't know what would have happened exactly, but I think he would have just perished maybe burnt away in the presence of God if that was real life. Kind of like when we try to look at the sun, see the glory of the sun, right? our eyes burn. We can't see the, the glory of a sun, let alone the glory of God. And God could have just left it the way it is. All of Isaiah's sin he had done, and if he is condemned, he deserved it. And yet, God, in his grace and mercy, sends a messenger, this angelic being, and Isaiah's guilt is taken away, and his sin is accounted for, right? He's forgiven, he's cleansed, so that he, though not holy, might be cleansed and be in God's presence. And that coal is a shadow of what God will ultimately do in Jesus Christ, right? It's like a little pointer to the cross, where God will send the ultimate messenger, the savior of the world, his very own son, to die on the cross. And as Jesus dies on the cross, he pays the penalty for your sins. 
So that all of our wrongdoing is given to him as if it is his own. We call that imputed. We impute our sin to him. And on the cross, as Jesus dies, God the Father pours his anger, his wrath, his judgment on Jesus as if every lie and sin and cheating and stealing that you and I have committed is is as if Christ has done it. And he takes that penalty. That if you would believe in Jesus, your sin is gone. But on the other hand, not only is our bad given to Christ, his good is given to us as if it is our own. That is his righteousness, his holiness is then imputed to us. So we give him our bad as if it's his own and he gives us his holiness as if it is our own. And this is what 2 Corinthians 5 says, For our sake God made Jesus to be sin even though Jesus knew no sin. And so our sin's given to him, but here's the other side of it, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. So that if you believe in Christ, you put your faith in Jesus, God sees you as if you're, you're holy, as if you are perfect, even though we're not. It's like we're covered over by a cloak of holiness that Christ has put over our shoulders, and God will treat you that way. We call this positional holiness or positional sanctification. In the moment when an unbeliever turns to Jesus in true faith and repentance, the Holy Spirit works in our lives to change everything. And our position before God is as if we are holy. That's your position. And nothing can change that. This is a one moment thing, a a single act. It's not to be repeated. In that moment, when you turn to Christ, you go from darkness to light. You go from death to life. You go from being a sinner to holy, from the old creation to the new creation, an enemy of God, now to a child of God, once destined to hell, now secure with a home with the Father for all eternity. That is positional holiness. This is what makes you a Christian. When you say, I'm a Christian, it means that has happened. That moment in my life where I went from death to life. And if you're not a believer here today, there's a problem with holiness in your life. And you cannot fix it. Don't try to earn the love of God. You've got to give up and turn to Christ and believe that He's done it all for you. And in that moment when you believe, you will be positionally holy. Your sin cleansed and his holiness, Christ's holiness cover over you. In a sense, therefore, as a Christian, we are in a way already holy. Right? The Bible kind of talks about us as already being holy in certain ways. When Paul talks to the church of Corinth, if you know the church of Corinth, they're really bad, they're really messed up. And yet he's still able to say in his introduction in verse 2 that they are those sanctified in Christ Jesus. They are already made holy. Because their position before God is, if they really believed, they are holy in his sight. Or Hebrews chapter 10 verse 10, that we have been sanctified. We have been, we have been made holy. That word sanctified is a verb form of holy. We have been made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Right, this is who you are as a Christian. Your identity is a person who is holy. You are saved. Right, even though we still fail, 
In one sense, before God, we are holy and will always be. But this then shows up in our lives in practical holiness. I drew a graph for you guys to try to help explain it. That's, called, that's the position of holiness. Sometime in the past, hopefully, as a Christian, you were justified in that moment. That leads to, one day, perfect holiness in my future. I either die or Jesus returns and will become perfectly holy or will be glorified. And between what happened in the past and what will happen in the future, we are practically living a life of progressive holiness. We call this sanctification, right? This is how we, we use the term sanctification today, even though in the Bible it's used in a broad way. We are growing to be who we will, want, who we will be one day. We're not who we used to be. I'm not that old Paul anymore that used to live in sin and love sin and hated God. That's not me anymore. I'm not who I used to be, but I'm also not who I will be. And so today and tomorrow, I'm on a journey growing into ever-likeness of Jesus Christ. Right? This is the Christian journey. We are to grow and grow and grow in holiness. Every day, taking steps in our thoughts, in our speech, in our actions to imitate Christ every moment of our lives practically being holy. This is what 1 Thessalonians says when it says, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. Oh, oh sorry, let me add this. Oh, it's confusing. This might help you, actually. In the past, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. We're being saved today from the power of sin, and one day we'll be saved from the presence of sin. Right? That might kind of help you wrap your mind around that graph. Okay. First Thessalonians says, God's will for you is sanctification. Right? No matter what's going on in your life and what decisions you need to make and what troubles that you have and all of that stuff, what I know absolutely certain for you is that God's desire for you is that you'll grow in holiness. Right now, today, in that situation, with that decision, in that relationship, that's God's desire for every single one of us. Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, right, before you were saved, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I just want to point out here, he says, you are children. As people, Christians, already saved, you're already a child, right? You, you once were an enemy of God, now you are a child. And so as a child of God, live like a child, right? Live a holy life. That's the Christian. I am holy in God's sight. I should live the holy life that a child of God should live. And this is, a, when you think about it, it's an incredible thing that we get to be holy. That we can be holy in our lives. That because of what Christ has done for us, this is a possibility for us. Before the Spirit lived in us, before we were you know, regenerate, before God gave us this new heart, before the power of the Spirit was at work in our lives, we were, we were going down the road of sin. But because of God, we can be like God and be holy. I love what, what Jen Wilkins says. You'd think that the first chief attribute of God, right, the one that stands out, will be something that is incommunicable, something that we can't be like. Right? Because when you think about God, if there's one thing that defines him, you think, oh, that, that's for God, not me. 
But what we're finding is that the chief attribute of God is something that not only God possesses, but something that we also share with Him. That really shows how much we are made in the image of God. That one primary defining feature of God is something that we can be like. We are to be holy. Now, I just want to say three quick things, and then I'll close. Number one, practical holiness does not save you. That life of trying to be a good person and do this and that and pray and, you know, give to to those who are suffering, it doesn't save you. Your positional holiness, right, that's what saves you, right? Turning to Christ in faith. And that's by faith. Practical holiness is works, right? You're doing something. That doesn't save you. You're saved by faith, not works. Okay, I just want to make that clear. Hopefully we know this. Second, positional holiness will inevitably lead to practical holiness. So we start there, turning to God in faith, and that then moves us to works. Jerry Bridges, he says, true salvation brings with it a desire to be made holy. And so if you are truly saved, God has changed your heart, you're a new creation, and your desire is now to obey him. Right? That's something in you that God has done. And third, Don't stop pursuing holiness. Every one of us here today could be more holy. I know that because Jesus hasn't returned and we're not dead. And so that means we're in that middle place where we're not yet perfect. And so I want you to think about your life, your thoughts. Your words, your actions. Is there an area in your life that you can submit to God and by His help be more like Christ? In your thoughts, your words, your actions, maybe at church, maybe in the workplace, maybe in your home, with your friends, to your family, to your spouse. Is there a way that you could be more like Christ? Be more like our God. In the area of money, in your occupation, in your decision making, or your relationships. I think there's a tendency for Christians after a while, you know, when we first become a Christian, we're really convicted by sin and whoa, I get to know God. How amazing is that? And we try really hard to, to. Lay aside our old life, our old ways, our old speech, our old habits, addictions. We try to cut them off. And we're very diligent about it. And oftentimes, you see in a new Christian, just radical changes. We're like, whoa, we're like, what happened to you? And they're like, I met Jesus. And you're like, praise God. I can tell the difference. But it feels like after a while, like we slow down. And that desire to be more like Christ, it's just like, oh, you know, but... I've already changed that much. I'm already a pretty good Christian. I mean, I look around at the church right now, better than that guy and that girl. And we feel like it's good enough. And to a degree, yes, you're good enough because of Christ, you're loved and you're saved. But no, in terms of practical holiness, there's always area to be more like Christ. Right? Not because it's, it's duty. 
Not because it makes God love us more. Not because it gets us to heaven. But because I love God and this is what pleases him. And I want to be like my Savior. And so we can't stop chasing and pursuing holiness. And so this is what we've seen. Our God is holy. He's incomparably perfect. He is separate, pure, transcendent. There's no one like him. He is flawless, faultless, perfect, complete. And the seraphim are crying out, he is holy, holy, holy. This is our God. And to a degree, I think we should have a godly fear of our God. Every time we step into this place, be amazed that we didn't die when we stepped through the wall, through the door when we tried to approach God, because that's what should have happened. But that we might approach Him freely because of Christ, His grace and mercy. And then as we behold this holy God, that we might be moved to be a holy people. And if you're not a Christian here today, again, I want to emphasize, there is a problem of holiness in your life that you cannot fix. You must go to Christ. He came to this world for that very reason, because he loves you. Believe in him. He will take away your sin. He will cover you with his righteousness, and you will become positionally holy in that moment. Even right now, if you were to go to Christ in true faith and repentance, and everything in your life, and everything in your eternity will change. And for the rest of us, let's live practically holy lives. Let's not stop pursuing that. Let's close our eyes and let's pray. And as we spend a bit of time in prayer, I just want to invite us to you know, thank God as we reflect on His holiness his wonder and his beauty and try to wrap our minds around just the infinite worth of our God, the indescribable beauty, the incomparable glory and holiness that we would try to wrap our minds around it and then give him thanks that we are in his presence because of Jesus. Give him thanks that he would hear our prayers, that he would consider us and care for us, that he would forgive us and love us in Christ. Why don't we approach this holy God, give him thanks for Jesus, and then commit ourselves to live lives of holiness, not because it saves, but because we are saved. Because it is our joy and pleasure to reflect God in our lives and to this world. Let's pray. Let's spend 30 seconds in prayer, and we'll sing a song.